Welcome to the Productive Producer Podcast, brought to you by the Northern Tablelands Local Land Services. This is your podcast for production and management decisions relevant to the Northern Tablelands region. I'm your host today, Max Newsom, one of the livestock officers based at Glenninus servicing the Northern Tablelands. On today's conversation, I'm joined with Teresa Hogan. Teresa is one of my livestock counterparts who works over in the Hunter region with the LLS. The Hunter region season is similar to that of the Northern Tablelands at present, with parts having a bulk of dry standing feed and lower than normal stock numbers as producers rebuild. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today as Teresa and I chat about some of the different strategies graziers can put in place to make the most out of their dry standing feed. Teresa, welcome to the Productive Producer Podcast. Thank you for coming along today. Thanks for having me, Max. I'm looking forward to this conversation. We quite often have these conversations over the phone on some of the different techniques and tactics producers are using and what's working well and what's not. So I'm looking forward to um, talking today about how we can get the most out of our dry standing feed. I think so. I think it's a really good opportunity to collaborate on what our, both our regions are currently looking at and where we're headed in the future as we look at drought recovery. Our regions do different, vary a little bit. Um, our winter, we have a bit of a winter feed shortage starting now and you're, you have a bit of a feed shortage in across the summer. Is that safe to say? Certainly safe to say. Uh, I think this year is slightly different for us. Uh, with the rain coming in February, March, which is unusual. Uh, So we do actually have quite a bulk of feed um, that has dried right off, but certainly it it varies across our region. Some areas are winter feed gaps and some are closer to that summer, particularly on the heavier soils. I think that a lot of the different strategies that we're going to talk about are going to be applicable across those varying seasons that people could put in place. Absolutely. I think we've really, when it all comes down to it, fundamentally our grazing management decisions are quite similar and it's only environmentally that, and the sort of breed of livestock we're using that we, we manipulate that to better our management decisions. I think we should start today and pro- a lot of our producers are aware of the difference between to- tropical and temperate. Um, pasture species however I think we should touch on this to begin with as we do have a spread of these particularly in the northern tablelands and they do have an impact on um, your energy content and your digestibility. They certainly do I think uh, it's become quite topical with tropical grasses becoming more and more popular with the amount of summer feed that you can get from them so tropical grasses uh, your warm season grasses, so your C4s, and you know they tolerate hot, dry conditions much better. So they became quite relevant during the drought, um, and a lot of their growth happens during that summer to early autumn. Uh, but they certainly slow down uh, as soon as those cool conditions start, and they are not in the slightest bit tolerant to frost. So I think that makes them um, more, much more significant in your area once those frosts start hitting. That, that growth definitely stops and they winter off. Whereas your temperate grasses, uh, you know, your much cooler conditions, they can tolerate um, those cooler conditions more than the tropicals. 
uh, and they tend to be a higher feed quality with most of their growth uh, happening in spring, but also through that autumn and winter. So once those cooler seasons start to hit, your temperate grasses will somewhat keep growing, whereas your tropicals will start, start to shut down. But in terms of in terms of feed quality, you know your temperate grasses are considered slightly more uh, higher quality, and that's just because they're much more easily digested. Whereas your tropical grasses, particularly once they start to dry off, they're um, much harder to break down. They sort of are resistant to that mechanical breakdown, that chewing process. So they require much more activity in the rumen to break them down uh, and therefore are responsible or may be responsible for that increased rumen retention, hence their popularity. So it's they've, they've both got a place uh, and I think you could use them together. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to chatting about some strategies, how we can get the most out of it. I think it's important for producers also to go out and critically assess their pastures. So know if they've got tropical or temperate or a, or a mixture in their paddocks at the moment and get out and have a look at the level of green in them because the level of green does have quite an impact on the level of digestibility and energy and also the level of legume content. A lot of these annual grasses that are frosted off uh, hayed off over the top of some of these legumes. So instead of driving through the paddock, having a look out the window of your ute, I'd be encouraging producers to jump out and um, push some of that dry sanding feed out the way and have a good look and see the level of green underneath as well. Absolutely. I think yeah, pasture assessment is one of the keys to making good grazing management decisions. You know, you, once you've determined the quantity and quality of your pasture, you can much easily make better decisions because, you know, you understand what's in there and you, we know what energy requirements our livestocks have. So we need to be able to make sure that we can meet that um, and also to determine our carrying capacity, you know, our length of time we can have them in the paddock and our potential growth rate of livestock. So it's really important to actually get out of the ute, get down on that ground level and see what is coming through, particularly now that it's much, much cooler. Um, you want to see whether you're getting any legumes through that pasture uh, so that you can make sure that you're meeting those energy requirements of your livestock. We might talk about now on matching some of these pastures to the classes of livestock and also assessing production objectives. So we might talk about um, some of the different pasture benchmarks for some of our classes of livestock to chase? Certainly, I think it's really important to understand what your livestock requirements, energy requirements actually are. I think if you don't have an understanding of that, you certainly will find yourself in a less productive state and you know that translates to less profitability. So certainly I think it's a good, good time to look at some of that, that benchmarking and understanding what that means. So across the Northern Tablelands, our cows are entering the last, definitely into the tr last trimester of pregnancy. Typically we're going to be calving end of July, August, and this year people may have left their bulls out a little bit longer to get an extra calf on the ground. So I feel we, some producers are gonna be calving in September, but for your calving cows, you're really going to be chasing that 24 
2,400 to 2,600 kilos of dry matter green. So I'd be using that as a bit of a guideline. Yes, certainly. So from that late pregnancy, the energy demand of the animal, pregnant animal begins to increase. So once they have the calf and they're in that early lactation, we're going to see our peak energy requirements. And then our mid-lactation, it starts to plateau. And then late lactation, when the calf's starting to feed itself, that sort of starts decreasing. So we know that in late pregnancy, our feed demands are starting to increase. And then early lactation is when it's going to be high. So you want that good quality feed in the paddock and you want to know that you're going to have the feed available to them. And it's going to be that higher quality likewise for your for your use they're in the um they're entering their second trimester now a lot of them across the northern tablelands um is that safe to say across in the hunter as well absolutely so a lot of our bigger producers probably dropped lambs back in autumn and are actually feeding now but we certainly will still see that spring early spring lambing uh and and the same applies i mean it's a rule of thumb across ruminants how with reproduction and and lactation where those feed demands need to be at their highest and it's also quite important to get on top of managing their energy requirements quite early on rather than in the later stages of gestation otherwise they'll be putting a lot of that energy into the growth of the fetus and that can lead to dystocia and a few other issues there. Do you want to talk about Certainly. that? Certainly. So getting, making those decisions early uh, and really being aware of the animal that you're dealing with and, and when those energy requirements are going to begin to increase is really important. I think one of the biggest things we learnt in the drought that that if you don't make your decisions early and your animal slips in condition, it's going to cost you a lot of money to bring that animal back up in its condition and its condition score. And that's particularly relevant when it comes to pregnant animals. Uh, And you are going to see a increase in the animals presenting with birthing complications because that energy wasn't there. uh, And they're starting to draw from other areas of their body and you'll end up with a weaker, not only will the, the lamb or the calf be weaker, but, so too will the mother uh, and then you've really got an uphill battle that's going to cost you a lot of money and a lot of loss in production that you could have avoided had you made decisions early and made sure that that feed was in the paddock or opted for some form of supplementary feeding. Particularly this this year with the value of stock there, um, what's your thoughts on, I think there's going to be value there in getting every live calf and every live lamb on the ground so really putting your focus into maximizing production in those areas our markets have just been blown out of the water and you know we're we're looking at prices never seen before as restockers start to pull in those stocks so it's become really relevant and really important to look after what you've already got particularly if you don't have that capital to spend 
on bringing more stock in. So looking after what you've got. I mean, we've worked very hard to get our stock through the dry period. For us here in the Hunter, you know, it, the, the drought is still going on and, you know, it's been a long four years. And yes, it's rained now, but we certainly aren't out of the woods yet, uh, as opposed to your area, which seems to be heading in a much more positive direction. But we worked hard to get the stock we've got through uh, and our, our farmers really put a lot of effort in um, and a lot of money into it. So keeping that going, you know, let's not stop looking after what we've got uh, and because it's going to cost a lot of money to replace it. So we want to make sure that they're in the best possible condition uh, that they can be to be putting them in lamb or in calf. Uh, and we want to optimise that productivity. So that's as simple as making sure that that feed is in front of them. But I think it's also a really good time to mention the fact that we have pulled these animals through a long dry period and it's a really good time whilst the markets are strong to be looking at what you've pulled through and what you've got and making sure that they are going to meet your production specifications and they're going to be profitable for you so really good time to just give them a good health check uh, and look over them and make sure that they're healthy and that they're going to be able to be productive for you and if they're not great time to take advantage of the current market and take them out of your system uh, so that you can put more effort into the animals that are stronger and are ready to go forward. Yeah, that's a really good idea there, Teresa. Teresa, um, we might go on now and talk about some of the different strategies our producers can use to get the most out of this dry standing feed once they've assessed the quality of it. So one of the ideas is feeding a bit of a supplement that's going to encourage the consumption of the dry standing feed to help meet those energy and protein requirements of the livestock. So I think one of the first ones and one of the most common strategies is feeding a protein meal. Would you like to touch on this to begin with? So protein supplements are considered one of the best ways, the simplest ways to increase pasture intake. Uh, and we tend to split that into to two categories. So we have our rumen degraded protein and that's broken down in the rumen and that tends to be our protein meals. And then we also have our undergraded protein or our bypass proteins, which are generally digested in the abomasin and the small intestines. So it's much easier to understand it in terms of particular products. So our protein meals, uh, such as our cottonseed meal and copra meal, which are commonly used, although we haven't seen cottonseed meal for a few years, uh, but they've certainly been replaced uh, with things such as canola meal, which are really high and rich in protein. Uh, and they're really common sources of rumen degraded protein, but also bypass protein and energy. So they are really easy to use products. They aren't necessarily or haven't been easy to acquire. Uh, they certainly were under a lot of demand once feedlots started looking uh, at different products to use during the drought. But one of the biggest pros of using a protein meal is that you don't have to feed it every day. So you can get away with feeding every couple of days. 
uh, we have to bear in mind that the rumen takes some time to adjust to a new feed. And if you're not regularly feeding something, the rumen will be shocked each time that that new feed comes into, into the stomach. Uh, and that tends to cause a small loss in production. Uh, and it can also, in more significant situations, lead, lead to such things as acidosis. So we want to keep as consistent as possible with what we're putting into our cattle. So our idea here is that we are trying to increase pasture intake because, as Max has said, it's a much cheaper alternative than buying in feed, particularly at the prices we're seeing now. So we want to make sure that that feed is going in regularly uh, and, you know, the, the animal has been adjusted to the feed and so they've adapted through slow introduction but once you get them into a rhythm of every couple of days feeding them the protein meal they should start to increase uptake that way you know the the animal is not losing any kind of production but you're also getting the best out of your pasture so it's definitely a strategy to use and one of the pros is you don't have to be in the paddock every day and for those producers who are lambing out of season it could be used there as well quite effectively it certainly can it's sort of it takes away that extra labor that comes with full hand feeding so you know you're not you're not out there every day uh, so you can sort of get on with other things and know that those animals are getting what they need and they're also getting the best out of their pasture one thing i'd particularly be looking looking out for with these protein meals is the level of mold in them so how long they're sitting in the paddock or making sure you've got them covered very well because that level of mold can definitely impact production of your livestock it can and it's really simple to avoid certain health issues by just monitoring the quality of your feet so we do need to keep in mind that because of the drought there has been protein meals coming in from a wide variety of sources uh, and particularly quite a bit coming from overseas. And it's just really important that we monitor the quality of that protein meal. So um, some a really good example is palm kernel meal. So it became quite popular about 12 months ago uh, when things really got tight and we couldn't get feeds in. Uh, and a lot of feed tests that we were doing proved that the quality was variable uh, and therefore it wasn't quite the product that people thought they were getting. Uh, and it also is a really good example of a protein meal that goes off or goes rank very quickly if you don't keep it covered uh, and you don't keep that weather off it. So uh, it's, it's really important to monitor that quality. I would use this opportunity to you know remind people about feed testing because it remains relevant at all times uh, it's really important to know exactly what you're putting out and knowing what your protein meal is before you put it in the paddock and knowing that it's going to meet the energy demands is really important and can save you a lot of money uh, and it also can save you a lot of uh, consequences relating to you know the quality not being there and causing health issues in your livestock so certainly keep up the the feed testing 
because, you know, you've introduced this protein meal because you want to get the best out of your paddock. So make sure it's the best it can be. Definitely agree with you there. And we did see across the drought the value producers found in using these feed tests. Um, We might also talk about now that the use that uh, aren't a complete feed, you can only use them as part of a ration. So particularly with the high oil content content in some of these, particularly your cotton seed. So this is why these protein meals are a good strategy to use in conjunction with our pasture. And they also encourage the animals stimulation to eat more of the dry pasture. So during the drought, we found that the amount of roughage that livestock needed was quite high when feeding some of these protein meals that had a high oil content. So it's really important to make sure that that roughage is in the paddock and that's that's where our dry feed stand is going to come into its element. So, you know, it, the reason we're doing this is to encourage them to eat that dry feed. So making sure that, you know, it's not the be all or end all, it's, it's more promoting better feed intake so you've just got to keep in mind that it's it's not replacing anything it's an additive so always keep that in the back of your mind and make sure that through your pasture assessments that there's still plenty of feed in that paddock definitely agree with you there we might move on now and talk about some of our non-protein nitrogen sources there's a there's a few of these from your dry licks to your blocks to your fortified molasses. So these are a good strategy as well. And maybe I'll be encouraging producers to crunch the numbers on these and the economics associated with them. They might be considered um, cheaper in a lot of circumstances, particularly to utilize the consumption of that dry standing feed and that urea. But there's a few, there's definitely pros and cons to come with this that I'm keen to chat about. Urea, I think, for a long time has been considered a taboo word in the industry. I think there is a lot of uncertainty around urea and I think it comes from not understanding how it actually works in the breaking down of feed. So it's becoming more and more popular as people start to look for alternatives uh, to get the best out of their paddocks. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's a non-protein nitrogen. So we all know what nitrogen can do in our system. It, it has its pros, and it, but it also, when fed uh, in, in big quantities, can cause significant problems. And urea poisoning is quite a, a commonly seen issue when urea hasn't been managed properly. Uh, but urea itself, I mean, it, it contains no energy or bypass protein. So it's it's going into the system and is being utilised by those rumen microbes to actually improve digestion. So it's, its job is going to be to break down that, that dry, low digestible feed that we're trying to pump our animal, into our animals. So we're trying to encourage them to eat more of it. So we need to have a rumen that's breaking more of it down, so to speak. So we want to keep those rumen bugs as happy as possible. And it's all in the way that you 
put it in front of your animals. Uh, so, you know, you, you want to be looking to make sure that the animal can't get too much too quickly. So I'm sure you'll agree, Max, you know, it's, it's all about the way in which we introduce it into our, into our animal system. So slow and steady generally wins the race. So, you know, you want, you want to be adding it as, as slowly as possible so that it gives that animal time for their rumen to adjust because too much nitrogen too quickly and you're going to be looking down the barrel of some serious acidosis issues and most likely death. So we want to avoid that at all costs. And I think that's where people have said, well, I'm just not going to even look at urea at all. It's too dangerous. But there are certainly some strategies that you can use to make sure that you are only introducing it slowly and that they aren't getting big quantity quantities of it too quickly. So it's commonly known that it can increase feed uptake by almost 20%. So in a pasture situation, that's exactly what we're aiming for. We wanna see those big numbers and we wanna see that pasture being utilized. But we also need to remember that that's causing significantly higher grazing pressure. So it comes back to back around to our pasture assessment and making sure that we're keeping up with it. But keeping on track and keeping on with, with urea itself, uh, I think there are some really good strategies as to how we feed it, that feed it out that we can utilise to make sure that we're not putting too much out too quickly. And, and that really goes back to how much is in the, so your actual source of, of how you're feeding it uh, and whether that is a, a dry lick situation or a, um, or a salt lick uh, out in the system. I, and there's also ways of putting it into water, but I wouldn't suggest necessarily heading down that path. But making sure that, you know, if you've got a, a lick block sitting in the paddock, it's not able to collect water so the water will bring all the nitrogen to the surface of the all the urea to the surface of the lick block uh, and that's a concentrated little drink for whichever animal walks along next definitely a death but trap keeping it there. out of the weather yeah <laughs> that's right so keeping it out of the weather and uh, making sure that they don't have free run on on straight urea will, will certainly help do you have any other strategies you've seen in Northern Tablelands, Max? I'd definitely be introducing, like you said, slow and steady wins the race. So starting with a low percentage urea lick or block and gradually building that up, bumping it up over the course of, keep that out for two weeks, then bumping it up like that. But particularly in the Northern Tablelands, I'd be looking at having um, coarse salt out in a loose lick form at least two weeks prior. Mm -hmm. That's going to stop your gorging of your... Um, urea products once they get there so they're not chasing that sodium and I'd also stress with your producers not not to leave them uncovered so always have your dry licks under a cover just to reduce that chance of urea poisoning there are there are those strategies there are those cons but it can be like you said a very effective tool to get more production out of your dry standing feed it certainly can, and I think so. It's one of those things that you want to look at in terms of a whole mineral supplement strategy. If you come from an area that 
is deficient in a particular mineral, you want to be aware of that. So, I mean, our soils are inherently deficient in sulphur. So feeding urea in conjunction with sulphur will certainly improve that microbial activity in the rumen and keep those rumen bugs happy. And, and that all leads to improved digestion. So just simple things like understanding what deficiencies you may have in your area uh, or you may have in, that your stock aren't getting enough of can really improve the way in which your urea works um, and it will certainly help you to get the best out of your urea. And so it doesn't hurt to have a chat with you know, your vet, you, you, you can do blood tests to determine what your animals are deficient in, but you can also determine it through soil testing. So you'll know that your pastures, for example, sulfur, you'll know your pastures are deficient in it because it's, it's not present through a soil test. So those sorts of little steps can help with that overall use of urea strategy and it'll make sure that you know, you are avoiding negative things happening because of your use of urea. Teresa, we might now touch on fortified molasses. They are quite, their popularity across the Northern Tablelands and possibly the Hunter as well has been increasing over a number of years. And there's a number of factors because of that and they are easy to use. But fortified molasses is your molasses, which is a very good energy source mixed with some protein in it so whether that's through urea or a protein meal i think we need to touch on this a bit and talk about talk about fortified molasses in a pasture system and the pros and cons with this as well molasses is an excellent energy source and it's been used for a very long time it's it's been people's go-to uh, for a feeding, for an energy source during the drought. But we've learned over time that the fortification of molasses is just as important uh, and it should be fed, as you mentioned, with either urea, urea uh, or a protein meal. So that's where our fortified molasses mixes come from and there are certainly plenty of them now on the market and certainly in the last two years we've seen quite a few more come into it as uh, what would be considered an overall uh, feed. But keep in mind, they are not a feed replacement. They are back to that complementation feeding. They are something that still needs to be fed with good roughage. So that's where they become really important in our pasture uh, dry pasture feeding off because they've got everything that we've talked about. They've got the energy, they've either got the protein or they've got the urea. So they're a really good and reasonably cost effective, depending on which path you head down, way of feeding. They also are much easier to feed once set up than, say, putting out uh, urea blocks. Um, because you're feeding them out less frequently. Um, so you can do it sort of two to three times a week, depending on how much pasture is in the paddock. Uh, and they tend not to, your sheep and cattle tend to get into them quite quickly. So they tend not to sit around in the paddock 
um, being exposed to the environment. And that, that directly comes from the fact that molasses is quite palatable and the animals quite enjoy it and will want to eat it. So we have to be careful how much urea is in it and how we're feeding that out and always, always, always build that up nice and slowly. Particularly some of those companies that do have it, they do, you do have the option there of making it sweet and sour, which is going to intake, impact the level of consumption. So ideally you're going to be starting with the mix more sour and as the season um, changes, and their room and adapts you can make it sweeter so you're increasing their consumption there i also think one of the benefits that you did touch on is it's a bit of a set and forget you you can put it in the truck comes drops it in the paddock and you can monitor it but you top it up when it's empty but i it's hard to know exactly how much an individual head is consuming compared to some of these other feed sources? It is. It's one of those ones that I guess we, we kind of assume that everything's sticking its head in the trough. We we can't necessarily monitor. You will always have shy feeders, and that, re, that re, relates to all facets of supplementary feeding or feed lotting. There's always shy feeders and there's always animals in the mob that will bully their way in and eat a lot of it. So I think that really goes back to that um, that idea and I think it's worth going back to uh, that sweet and sour concept. So I think that's a, a little bit more modern in terms of a lot of our uh, factories that are making this now have that option. So you can determine how sour it is. So it's, I think your comment on making sure that you start sour is really good to slowly introduce those animals to it. Uh, but it is hard to gauge what they are eating and how much they are getting. I think you could possibly determine it by how well they are utilising what's what dry feed is left in your paddock. Uh, as, as your telltale. You can also use their weights as a good indicator as to whether they are consuming enough of it to be getting enough out of the pasture. So regular weighing could be an option for getting those, getting that idea of how much they are consuming. Uh, but you certainly in cattle, I think it's less so in sheep, but certainly in cattle, you will always have that one that is the first one to the trough and just sits there and gulps it down. So uh, you, you've got to be aware of that and you've got to keep an eye on that and uh, potentially pulling those guts, animals that guts it a little bit more out and separating them and giving them less might be an option to avoid any kind of negative consequences from feeding it out. I think it's important before we move on to our next one, that we reiterate, especially with your protein nitrogen sources, you do need that bulk of dry standing feed there. So you're gonna need your 20, at least 2.5 tons of dry matter per hectare and definitely moving them off once it gets to a ton to a ton and a half of dry matter per hectare. Otherwise you're definitely gonna run into some um, trouble there. You certainly do, and it's it's a really 
really important that the thing that everybody takes away from from listening to us having a chin wag is that if that roughage isn't there this is not an option this is this is a complementary feeding to ensure that that pasture is being utilized so if the pasture is not there this feeding isn't relevant uh, and it's only going to cause you problems uh, and huge losses in production if you're not consistently pasture assessing and you know getting down and getting out of the ute and getting down and seeing what is growing uh, and what is in the paddock and making sure that you keep it up at that 2500 because the animals will suffer if there's not there's not feed in the paddock and particularly fortified molasses mixes if there is below 700 kilos of dry matter per hectare they're going to need a lot more fortified molasses uh, and potentially you'll be putting some some form of straw in the paddock so it hasn't hasn't really worked for you we might move on now and talk about some of our high protein grains and some of our high energy grains and how they can be used as a strategy as well. Cereal grains are a really efficient supplement when our paddock feed is dry, particularly for our sheep. Uh, so these grains produce lactic acid in the rumen, which slows down digestion and the consumption of fibrous paddock feed. So they're basically little energy packets that head on into the rumen and uh, and provide the energy that we aren't necessarily going to get from that dry feed as its quality has backed right off. So it, in slowing down the rumen and the, and the rumen process, it gives the rumen microbes enough time to, to break down that feed and get, the, and get the most out of it because it is very dry and mechanical the mechanical chewing has not broken it down enough to make it easily digestible once it's sitting in the rumen. So there's plenty of options out there as to what types of grains that you use. I mean, a lot of our grains are quite high in energy. So, you know, you're looking anywhere from 12 to 14 megajoules of energy across your common grains, so your wheat and your barley uh, and, you know, your corn. And a lot of choice as to which grain is being used predominantly comes from availability. So during the drought, it was basically whatever you could get at a price that was affordable. Uh, we did see some variation in the quality of these grains. Um, energy and protein were down, uh, but that was as a direct result of poorer growing seasons. Uh, but we certainly see a bigger variety of quality in our grains when it comes to their protein levels. So your maize is probably sitting back at about 9 9% protein, whereas your wheat and barley are sort of up around that 11 to 12% protein. So I think it's very much about that decision as to which one you go for is around 
the quality of the pasture that you have in front of you uh, and whether or not you are feeding anything else out with that grain. But again, it goes back to the fact that this is not, we're not talking about completely supplementing their feed. So this is complementing what's in the paddock uh, and it's about choosing, uh, you know, what's most cost effective for the energy content and the protein content. I think the the new drought and supplementary feed calculator is a good way to compare some of these different feed options that we're putting out there and also throwing in your pasture component. So it's an effective tool for producers who are looking at playing around with some of these numbers, particularly if you've entered your dry, your dry standing feed and your pasture into this system and you want to compare your... Um, maize to your wheat or your barley or whatever you're looking at feeding and i definitely agree with you there particularly with getting the most out of your dry standing feed um feeding grain to your sheep would be more of a cost effective approach rather than feeding it to your cattle um your sheep can eat lower to the ground some of these grains you can trail feed without the risk of um, too much wastage as compared to your cattle. Whereas if you're trail feeding some of these grains, you're just going to um, be losing quite a big percentage there. You're absolutely right, Max. It's one of those things that we tend to not think about, but grazing habit of our livestock is really important to feed choices. So as you've said, the sheep graze much lower to the ground compared to our cattle. So they're struggling to utilize that dry standing feed, unlike a cow, which is much happier with that tall dry feed. So you wanna be adding something to that system for them that gets their heads back down on the ground. Uh, and, you know, if you're looking to prevent feed wastage, the sheep is an excellent vacuum cleaner. So, you know, those that trail feeding option or, or feed trough option is much, much easier for. I'd like to leave our listeners with a few figures to consider. So for our cattle, we... There's a few general figures that we could um, throw around there to, for producers to use to maximise dry standing feed. There certainly is. We just need to remember that these numbers relate to a paddock with feed in it. Uh, so this is to increase their pasture intake. So if you've got cows and calves uh, with continuous access to a urea molasses fortified mix. You want to see about 60 grams of urea per head per day, bearing in mind that you will have to build those animals up to that 60 grams. So do not start with 60 grams, build them up slowly over a few weeks. So those rumens can adjust to that urea content. If we are using uh, protein meals, you know, you could be feeding two to three times a week. They should be getting 300 to 700 grams of that protein meal per head per day. 
And just keep in mind the quality of the protein meal that you're using. They, they do differ somewhat in their protein levels. So make sure you've got a feed test in front of you to just to work out how much they're getting. And again, slowly introducing them, start small, work them up, get those rumens used to it. And then if we're feeding a high protein grain, you know, say every second day, you can be feeding them 500 grams to a kilo per head per day, depending on the energy and protein content of that grain. And again, nice and slowly introduced. Yeah, there's some good figures to um, for our producers to start to consider with. And I might touch on some of our sheep figures for your um, late pregnant ewes. I do encourage to go out and assess that level of green in your pasture because that's really going to drive the production there. So if your ewes have got um, a thousand kilos of dry matter per hectare green, that'll be good enough for those in late pregnancy and 1200 kilos of dry matter per hectare for your twin bearing ewes. However, if this pasture really does dry off and there's not much green in it, some of these strategies that we talked about, adding these supplements. If there's a bulk of dry standing feed, not much green in it, I'll be looking at feeding, building them up to, for your single bearing ewes that are in late pregnancy, 600 grams of corn per head per day, and for your twin bearers, 730 grams per head per day. That's on your temperate pastures. But if you compare this to your tropical pastures, that single ewe's gonna need a bit more that 760 grams per head per day and that twin twin pregnant you is going to need you 900 grams per head per day that's just a bit of an example of corn you can you can look at some of those different options that we've talked about today but i just wanted to leave some leave our listeners with a few figures there Teresa, what are the key take-home messages you really want our producers to get out of today There are three take-home messages from today's session that I'd love for everybody to take away from this. And and that's that pasture assessment is a really important tool to helping make timely grazing management decisions. Always introduce new feeds slowly and get a feed test to know what energy and protein is available in the supplementary feed you've chosen to improve your pasture intake and to make sure that it's going to meet those livestock nutritional demands. Well, Teresa, thank you very much for your time today. I'll put your contact details in the show notes for all our Hunter listeners. If they want to get in touch with you, you're happy for them to give you a call? Certainly am. And I'll put the numbers in in the show notes as as well for the full list, my contact details and the contact details for the rest of our livestock team in the Northern Tablelands. Thank you, Teresa, for coming along today. I've enjoyed having this conversation with you. Thanks, Max. It's been great. Cheers. If you liked today's episode, hit the subscribe button. Feel free to jump onto our Facebook page, Productive Producer. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for more episodes. Please note, the disclaimer in the show notes as some of the issues and content discussed on this podcast may not be applicable to every farm enterprise 
and guests and hosts within this podcast are not liable.